You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, a podcast where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, to see if they might turn into fresh soil from which new life might spring. Welcome to our first episode. We're recording today on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God and for tens of thousands of years the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. And uh, welcome to episode number one. It's uh, great to have you with us. Thanks for giving this podcast a try and uh, really looking forward to hearing feedback from all and sundry on this little experiment as we uh, head forward. I'm here today with Scott Sanders, the CEO of the Christian Justice Organisation Common Grace. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Byron. Thanks for having me. Scott, how would you describe yourself in 15 words or less to someone who hasn't met you? I would say I'm a 31-year-old Christian, unlearning the strictures of my faith, uh, an extrovert who's learning to listen, and someone who's fascinated by by the stories behind everything. Great. Let's move into our first segment. This is a podcast in three segments. Um, First, we explore a big idea that helps us understand the news, helps us to connect the dots between what's going on. Then we'll look at some news stories, and then we'll think about how we're going to respond. So this first segment, what's the big idea? Uh, The big idea this first week is the idea of common grace, not the organisation. We'll talk about that in a minute, um, but the idea. Now, if you're a Christian person listening to this or someone with some inkling uh, of what Christians are on about, you might be familiar with the idea that God is a generous giver, that everything good has its origins in divine provision. Jesus adds a twist that transforms any self-righteous notion of divine blessing that uh, might correlate with our performance. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God, the giver, according to Jesus, is indiscriminate. God's fundamental grace, his gift, his goodness, expressed in the conditions necessary for life, sunlight, water, is shared amongst all creatures, regardless of merit. And this idea that God gives gifts to all, that God's basic compassion is boundless and universal, is sometimes referred to by that theological phrase that I mentioned, common grace. God's basic free gifts of life are shared among us all, are common These good things are received in common and regardless of whether we deserve them or not. And Jesus, in that Sermon on the Mount, draws a radical conclusion from this. We ought to be a bit like God. We ought to copy God's radical generosity. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so, reflecting on these words of Jesus, being children of a heavenly father, worshipping an indiscriminate giver, means seeking to nurture a compassion that grows towards the width of God's own compassion. That God is creator of all, that God's gifts are for all, precludes any narrow identity, any merely tribal loyalty, any agenda restricted to helping those just like us. And that's uh, a conviction that's really crucial for me and crucial for this podcast because it's part of the reason 
why I hope that whether or not you are a Christian person, you find useful things in this. Because this isn't uh, intended just for those who uh, follow Jesus, but it's intended for all, all of us who rely on the sunlight and on the rain. And uh, perhaps we can push this idea a bit further. And here you might begin to see why the organisation that Scott leads settled on the name Common Grace for an organisation seeking justice. Because if Christians worship a God whose blessings are showered upon both righteous and wicked, then the moral status of individuals or groups can't be read off from their relative success in life. We can't assume that prosperity is a sign of divine approval, nor conversely that suffering equals divine condemnation or punishment. So sometimes people operate with a notion which we might call karma or we might call providence or the natural order that good deeds typically get rewarded and harmful deeds get punished. But if we, if we have that conviction that the world is already fundamentally basically okay, then that denies the existence of real widespread systemic injustice in the world. And so adopting the name Common Grace for a movement that's seeking to pursue justice is therefore a reminder that worshipping a God who gives graciously to all can't be restricted to upholding the privileges of the powerful or the respectable. We can't just engage in victim-blaming and look at people who are having a rough time in life and assume they must have done something wrong to deserve it. There's no tribal defensiveness of our existing privileges. Instead, to work for justice is founded upon the conviction that God is good to all, and we get the privilege of joining in. So, Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about the organisation, Common Grace. How, uh, how does that idea of Common Grace, that God is good to all, how does that shape or influence or um, uh, affect the, the nature of the organisation, Common Grace? Yeah, so when we started, it was about a little over four years ago, uh, and uh, what became Common Grace grew out of a, both a restlessness and a, an optimism and a hope for what it could lo- look like for Christians to come together and publicly engage on issues of social justice. Uh, the way that we saw Christians uh, engaging in our society, uh, we felt increasingly was looking less like Jesus, like uh, what, what a generous, uh, beautiful, um, gracious, yet provocative public voice would look like. Um, on pressing justice issues in our world today. And as we explored what it would look like to bring Christians together uh, in a movement that can actually campaign and advocate for different justice issues, this idea of common grace uh, became such a resonant idea for us because it positioned uh, us at seeing the beauty and value um, in others, uh, in not focusing on what we ourselves have um, uh, to protect about our own experience, but seeing that God is good to all. And there's this invitation that we get to be a part of that. We get to partner with God in making things right in this world and that the impartiality of grace um, uh, seen throughout creation, uh, there's this this posture which we wanted to resonate in our own engagement in these issues. And, I mean, quite practically as well, if you're trying to be a movement of Christians who are campaigning around a range of different social justice issues... um, uh, you want a name which makes sense. And there's something beautiful about just those two words, common grace, that they don't need too much definition. They don't need too much clarification. You ask a person what comes to mind when you think of common grace. Uh, more often than not, they'll say things like uh, us coming together, like the idea that we share things in common, that there's a unity which comes together in that. And grace, while that might have a much um, uh, longer definition in a theological textbook, 
Uh, for many people, it's being thankful uh, around a meal. Mm. And even that idea carries with it the heart of how we want to be positioning ourselves mm. as Christians engaging generously in the world around us, believing that as we actually do that, we might start to see more of that resonated in people's lives. And as we see um, significant injustice and systems which have been created, which cause oppression and marginalization, we can actually build from a generous movement a response which actually seeks to address and, and tackle some of those problems without ever compromising on grace, which also positions us uh, both with the victim in solidarity and particularly hearing their stories and amplifying their voices, but not at the risk of villainizing and, and blaming and pointing fingers away from ourselves um, to blame the problems, but actually recognizing that we're part of the solutions and we're going to be respectful in the way that we engage in this. And politicians, uh, as we advocate to them, we will always maintain that love and, and generosity, even in the way that we advocate. Yeah, no, I love that idea. And I love... Uh... The, the, the notion of grace as the, uh, the, the blessings of life mm. and the, the notion that these are shared, uh, you know, really does help to ground an uh, engagement in society that isn't based on um, merit, on what I've done, what I've earned, on my, what I'm entitled to, but as a recognition that so many of the most crucial things in life come to us for free, but they're the most precious um, the air we breathe and the, the water we drink and the food we eat and the life that we share with one another. Whatever ills we may each be contributing to the world, nonetheless, we all receive that, that basic gift. Mm. Now, we've been, we've been speaking a little bit abstractly here about justice mm. and uh, God's generous bounty and concern for all. Mm. Take us a bit into the specifics. What, what actual issues does Common Grace then seek to make a difference on? Yeah, so we're still kind of a young movement, finding our feet. So we're at 40,000 Christians across the Australian church uh, who organise online. And so we seek to bring people together through emails and social media and, and a website advocacy platform, which actually invites Christians to come together on, on common ground to work towards a common good. And there's four campaigns uh, that we've been working on over the last couple of years. Um, uh, the first one is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice, knowing that as an Australian organisation, we need to be modelling what it looks like uh, to build relationships, to, to listen and learn to Aboriginal Christian leaders uh, and the incredible wisdom and leadership that they have to, to guide us and, and journey us together on a, on a path which actually leads to greater justice and healing in this land. Uh, we need to be led by Aboriginal Christian leaders. I can uh, jump in here. Yeah. Uh, one of the Aboriginal Christian leaders um, that Common Grace has been really blessed with, uh, Brooke Prentice, will be uh, my conversation partner on the second episode. So you can look forward to that. Yeah, Brooke is incredible. So she, on a personal level, um, the friendship that we have had over the last couple of years has taught me so much about love and grace and justice. Uh, but for Brooke, leading our movement on Aboriginal justice issues, it's all about relationship and friendship. And so while we're an online movement, we're inviting Christians across the church to actually connect with Aboriginal Christian leaders so that we can then advocate together. But it comes as an overflow of friendship and relationship. Uh, the other three campaign areas that we work um, is justice for people seeking safety on our shores here in Australia, justice for people seeking asylum, for refugees. What does it look like for Australia to be a, a generous country? But what for us as Christians does it look like to embody the, uh, the biblical notion of welcome? 
That's one of the campaign areas that we work. Uh, another one is climate justice or, or creation care, or what does it look like for us to partner with God uh, in caring for this world, this good, beautiful earth. The fourth area yeah. um, uh, where we work is domestic and family violence. Uh, and uh, this is an epidemic um, across the world and in Australia. It's not something which churches are actually shielded from. Uh, and in, in fact, the belief that it doesn't happen in our churches can actually cause greater harm to those people who are vulnerable to um, uh, violence within families, within churches. So how do we actually find ways to not just to advocate for more funding and, and better services, but actually to realise that within the way that we do churches, some things might need to change to ensure there's greater environments for safety and belief of people who are at risk or experiencing domestic and family violence, as well as accountability for perpetrators uh, and uh, an and ability for churches to become safer communities. Um, and so those four areas, just to quickly go over them again, so yeah. Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander justice, climate justice, justice for people seeking asylum, and uh, domestic and family violence. So the four areas that at the moment that the last few years we've been campaigning around. Uh, and it's, uh, it's incredibly exciting to see Christians come together on the common ground from across traditions and generations. So we have different views and perspectives, but we care together to campaign for a common good because we all share in God's common grace. Uh, well, that's that's uh, an excellent overview uh, of the, the, the exciting organisation Common Grace. You can find the website, commongrace.org.au. Uh, you can sign up for, for updates. You can follow on Facebook. Um, but I uh, encourage all our listeners to um, be a part of that uh, movement. And again, whether or not you're a person of faith, um, these are issues that concern all of us. And this is a movement in which, uh, uh, you know, Christians are recognising we all share the good gifts um, of God, um, and we don't deserve them, um, but we want to be just in the way that we receive them and share them with uh, one another. Now we're going to move into our second segment. Uh, our first segment was what's the big idea. Second segment is what's going on. And in this segment, we're actually going to pick a couple of news stories that have uh, emerged recently, uh, not necessarily you know the last 24 hours or the last few days even, but but have been in the news recently. Um, that have grabbed our attention, and uh, uh, I will will bring up a couple, and my guests might bring up a couple, and uh, together we'll sort of share the things that have caught our eye. But there are two criteria in particular that I want to have for these news stories. Uh, the first is that they're of lasting significance, that they're of something to do with the, the, the deeper drivers of change in the world, not just the froth and bubble of personality politics and gaffes and gotchas and all that's worst in the sort of celebrity culture um, that, that surrounds much of the media reporting um, of the, the 24-7 daily grind of the news cycle, but that actually are stories that we need to know to understand what's going on in the world around us that give us crucial information, not just juicy tidbits to get outraged over. That's the first criteria. The second is that maybe they weren't on the front page. So things that we might have missed, news we need to know but which we might have missed... For this episode, the, the first story that I want to highlight, Air Pollution, Everything You Should Know About a Public Health Emergency. It's an article by Damien Carrington, the uh, Guardian's environment editor, and it's really a summary of a whole lot of developments that have been happening in the last few months and a couple of years regarding research into the effects of air pollution. Now, this is, this is sort of one of those environmental issues that I remember being big when I was a kid in the 80s and people talking about smog in the city and, uh, you know, doing things to improve air quality. Um, and in, in my perception, it sort of faded into the background a bit. 
But in the last few years, it's really come roaring back, not just with stories about the airpocalypse in Beijing and, you know, uh, pictures of cities in India and China in particular with air quality so poor you can barely see across the street, but some really concerning research about the, the pervasive effects of the poor quality of air that most of us are breathing. Mm. Um, because it's not just in places where it's really obviously bad in Southeast Asia, but in, in pretty much every city in the world and even in many of the places outside cities, um, the uh, World Health Organization uh, estimates that well over 90% of the world's population live in places where air pollution is not safe, where it exceeds the, the WHO, the World Health Organization's guidelines. And this is, this is quite concerning. But when you start reading why this is a problem and the, the long list of uh, health effects that um, air pollution has been linked to, it really becomes uh, deeply concerning. Everything from the sort of obvious uh, issues of asthma and uh, lung cancers but through to almost every organ of the body. There are kidney problems have been linked to it. Uh, it's linked to obesity. It's been linked to anxiety and mood disorders. Uh, air pollution is linked to uh, low birth weights for infants, um, to reduced learning outcomes for students, um, to suppression of all of our cognitive abilities at whatever age you are. The estimate is that on average, each of us has lost a year of our education um, that's that's the the scale of the cognitive loss that that happens uh, when we're breathing poor quality air, uh, all, all the way through to a very large number of deaths um, being attributable to air pollution, um, not just from sort of acute asthma attacks, but it also can trigger uh, stroke and heart attack. Uh, and so the the latest estimates actually put the annual global death toll from air pollution at somewhere around nine million people. Mm. And I've done a bit of the crunching of the numbers on that. That's one every four seconds, 17 a minute, 1,000 an hour. Uh, this is bigger than malaria, AIDS, terrorism, and war combined. Hmm. You know, just in Australia, uh, the, the figures are more than 10 times the annual road toll. So this is a, this is a huge and largely ignored issue. Uh, it doesn't get a huge deal of uh, attention. Its causes are complex and varied, everything from burning coal, which is a, a huge culprit, to uh, wood-fired stoves and, and fireplaces, uh, to the exhaust of um, internal combustion engines, particularly diesel is, is especially bad. Um, but even, even just the tyres of vehicles moving on the road throw up tiny particles from the tyres and from the road, uh, bushfires. Uh, so there are many, many uh, sources of uh, poor air quality, and it varies from place to place, which is the worst. It's just one of those chronic background issues making the world a significantly worse place, making some cities uh, almost unlivable. And it very much relates to this idea of common grace for me, like mm -hmm. the, the very air that we breathe. We're all connected by that same air. We all need, uh, you know, it's the most vital thing for life. It's not something that you can easily sort of opt out of or uh, think that it's not your problem. And so uh, I wanted to start with it because it is so pervasive, so largely invisible a lot of the time, yet really quite deeply concerning as a, a symptom of our failure to care for one another that we continue to engage in uh, often unnecessary practices, um, pursuing the combustion of fossil fuels and very 
car-dependent, building very car-dependent cities, that these are choices that are made um, to benefit certain people and to make certain industries very profitable, but the costs get pushed onto all of us. Any thoughts on this, Scott? Yeah, yeah. Look, the first thought that comes to mind for me is um, uh, how distant the atmosphere feels. Like, when you when you think of, like... Uh, pollution uh kind of going up and there's there's a degree which for me as someone small with my feet on the ground it's kind of out of sight out of mind if you put a roof over my head and you lit a fire inside and the smoke started to circulate within that room i'd very quickly do something to address that i might open a window or i might actually get rid of the source of the smoke or i might put in a chimney something about if you then lift that roof off and you just let it float up into the atmosphere we can then just switch off our, our mind for a while. But if you actually take our collective contributions to that and you scale that up, really it is still a roof, what that we're doing and the kind of circulating around it, but because it's, uh, it's somewhat invisible, uh, there's a, a distance which comes from that, which, um, you know, I'm not a person who smokes. I've never been a person who smokes. If I'm near someone who's smoking, uh, in the interest of my own health, I'll usually kind of uh, move to another location if I can. But I have no personal concern about the, like the, the, the collective contribution of my, my driving my car and the other things that I'm doing which are contributing to pollution, my, the energy that I'm using. But I switch all of that off really easily because uh, it seems like the atmosphere can handle it. There's a distance between those things, which partly I think is, um, is an intentional yes. distance that, that it's, we, we want to keep it quiet. Um, and I mean, that happened historically with cigarettes as yeah, well. Absolutely. Uh, once we have the science, let's just try and find a way to, to either uh, discredit it or to ignore it yeah, and to or, kind of distract. That's right. And I think the third step is uh, discredit, ignore, but then personalize it and make mm. it all about the individual choices yeah. of the smoker to choose to do that to their body mm. um, and try to hide the, 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 the pervasiveness of, you know, at the time, the pervasiveness of cigarette advertising mm. and cigarette lobbying and the power of the tobacco industry mm. um, to prevent the regulation of that dangerous, toxic uh, substance. You know, there's a whole playbook there mm. of how to keep an issue off the table, mm. how to maintain the profit stream, even in the face of mounting uh, alarming evidence. Mm. And to give a sense of the relative scale, uh, roughly speaking, about a million people a year die from tobacco, um, and we're looking at maybe nine million uh, with air pollution. And, uh, and one of the issues is that it's it doesn't appear on people's death certificate. It's not they died because of the bad air. You know, what will be on the death certificate might be something like heart attack or or stroke or asthma or. But the trigger or one of the underlying uh, contributing causes that uh, worsened it was was the mm. poor quality of the the air that we breathe. And uh, I mean, speaking personally for a moment here, I'm a survivor of uh, cancer in my respiratory system. Mm. Um, And so, you know, for me, as I was really struggling to breathe, uh, as I had a tumour growing and and blocking uh, one of my bronchial tubes, um, so for a while I was breathing on one lung, just that idea of how precious and yet taken for granted air is Mm. uh, really struck home to me. Mm. Um, I think that was that was part of the reason why I started paying more attention to mm. stories around air quality. Mm. It's it's interesting uh, as a Christian, uh, the idea of God breathing life into mm. creation and into humanity. It's it's profound to then think um, what we then did with that, yeah. <laughs> what we've done with that, and now actually what we're doing is creating toxic air mm. that that 
particularly the, the, the poorest are suffering the greatest effects of it because there's a lot of the solutions that we have um, are privileged solutions where yep. we can actually you know, have filters or we um, uh, can kind of change our environments to protect ourselves from it rather than actually change the, the issues that are driving it. We create environments which are shielded from yep. it, which are only accessible to those who can afford to do that. Um, and even kind of within our, our cities, some of the sort of ways that we would try and do this uh, don't necessarily underline the deeper dependence that we have on fossil fuels, which is leading to, to these kind of issues. But something I found encouraging uh, in the article was that as we do start to su- find some of those bigger ways to solve this problem, the impacts are massive. Like the, it's not just that you, you fix one issue here, mm. but you know, encouraging people to drive less, mm. you know, it's going to be pumping less pollution up into the atmosphere. It's also encouraging people to exercise. It's also connecting people and slowing down cities. And it's, and so as you do start to address these things and addresses a whole bunch of other issues in the midst of that, even just the, the, friendliness of being able to have a, a pedestrian focused space yeah absolutely um, the the greater social benefit of knowing and meeting your neighbors yeah um in a walkable neighborhood environment yeah uh, i mean i think about the difference between living in suburbia where i grew up and where to get anywhere you needed to drive mm. uh, and then the privilege of living in a place now uh with medium density housing where my life is largely walkable so yeah you're totally right that there are uh, many excellent win-win opportunities in seeking to address uh, air pollution um, with, uh, you know, one of the biggest, one that we've, we've mentioned earlier but haven't touched on here is that a lot of the drivers of poor air quality are also the drivers of climate change. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure that's an issue we're going to come back to in future episodes and for anyone who's been following me online, you're aware that this is a particular passion and concern of mine and, and uh, the focus of uh, my PhD research over the last few years. But let's move on to a second story, and uh, this is a story about a recent report. They've looked at something like 4,000-odd species around the planet for which there is good data going back decades uh, on their numbers, their abundance, um, the health of their populations. These uh, data sets have been gathered by scientists all around the world, and the trend in these data sets is very stark and very concerning that between 1970 and 2014, the average loss in each of those species was 60%. We're talking about all vertebrate species, mammals, fish, birds, amphibians, reptiles. The average loss in those species was 60% over a 40-odd year period. Now, that's a bit longer than the period of my life, but not that much longer. And it's just incredible to think how much emptier the world is Mm. of wild creatures, how much more filled it is with uh, humans and and human domestic creatures and and our agricultural uh, creatures that we rely on. But this is a a great silencing um, of, I mean, one of the, the famous works of uh, that, that helped to kick off the environmental modern environmental movement in the 1960s was Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, where she imagined a springtime without birds that was silent without without birdsong as a result of the effects of DDT at the time, a, a pesticide. But it's not just the birds. We're silencing all the creatures. Mm. Uh, so this isn't talking about 60% of species going extinct. This is within each species, their numbers declining. Uh, it's it's an average. There are you know there are some species doing better and some doing a lot worse. 
But this uh, Living Planet report um, has been published every two years. Each time it gets worse. They're, they're, it's been pretty consistent each time they've published it that the, the figures just keep getting worse. Uh, and again, there are a whole series of complex issues driving this loss. So in a sense, this is the, the banner headline of an outcome that's the result of many different processes feeding into it. And, and uh, we will, in this episode and in future episodes, be trying to tease out some of those contributing factors and exploring them, because this really is one of the big stories ongoing, happening in the background all the time uh, around the world. A massive transformation of the living spaces of the planet um, and the, the rendering of more and more of the planet uh, hostile or inhospitable to God's creatures. Any thoughts or reflections uh, on this, Scott? Again, it's, it's, happening, it's happening under our noses or under our hands is probably a better way to say it by our kind of activity. But we're replacing it with our urban sprawl with our kind of um, our own presence on the world which means that we're not conscious of what was missing uh, or what is missing in the places where we create our homes, where we kind of create our cities and the impacts of that in, in the same way that uh, that pollution and the, the, the pollutants and contaminants that come from the way that we live uh, in talking about air pollution on, on human health we choose to turn a blind eye to the fact that, that we're having significant significant impact on the the diversity of species and the and the, the i guess the prosperity or the multiplicity of, of species and i approach this as a christian yeah. um and for me i i feel like uh just the the narrative of genesis and that story of of the ark and the commitment to the diversity of all creatures and the the preservation in the wildlife kind of captured within that story i i think then to kind of what we're doing now Really, we're building an ark for ourselves mm. to the exclusion yeah. of all other creation. Like yeah. we're, we're taking we're, up all the rooms on the yeah, ark. Here. Yeah, we are. So, well, actually, no, we're, we're so insatiable. Yeah, I, I can't help but, but personalize it as tragic loss to think that idea of common grace, that in the richness of all of creation, grace is seen in that diversity. Grace That's is right. seen in the multitude of species, ex- all expressing a different part of its kind of, its created purpose. And I, I remember watching uh, this, this David Edinburgh documentary just a few nights ago, and just again being fascinated at the richness of the planet overlaid on top of the fragility that actually we, when we're consuming it as entertainment, mm. not as a responsibility to look after it that we we or we approach it as a textbook with a presumption that it's always going to be there and our actions can't possibly harm it but everything is pointing to the fact that that it is yeah um and it's our our lack of ownership of the responsibility and the impact of that which reflects to the lack of concern like that actually back to that idea of the arc that you know it's actually as long as we're okay which we're not yeah. we can't exist as a That's single right. species we, we, we cannot <laughs> we don't live without the other creatures yeah. that we are reliant upon a whole web of life yeah um and uh so that god's good gifts that sustain us mm. are often mediated by other creatures um but more than that god's good gifts are for other creatures mm. too that that god's goodness isn't just for humans god's concern we see throughout throughout the scriptures uh, overflows beyond just humanity and human concerns, mm. where we get glimpses of a creator who cares for wild creatures that mm. have no direct connection with human society. Mm. Uh, and even if you go a bit earlier in Genesis, um, right into the first creation account, uh, where God 
uh, you know, famously blesses the humans and says, be fruitful and multiply. And some people, you know, have a problem with that. But uh, they miss the fact that God says the same thing to the other creatures, be fruitful and multiply, Mm. that this is a planet that is meant to be a shared space Mm. um, of blessing and abundance for all of life upon it, not just for humans. Mm. And so if our fruitfulness is squeezing out space for the fellow creatures, then we're doing it wrong. Mm. And the thing is, it happens so slowly too. I mean, it's it's just you know sixty percent over forty five years. That's a, a alarming headline feature. But the thing is, that's just a little bit each year, hmm. just just a bit, and then just a bit more. And so there's a, a psychological phenomenon known as shifting baseline effect, where you think that what you saw when you were growing up is normal. Um, and the thing is, the kids growing up today will think that this diminished Earth that we now have is the normal. But then I realise the numbers didn't start declining in 1970. So that 60% is only from 1970. They were already on their way down Mm. well prior to that. There was already a a baseline that had shifted. Um, There's there's this amazing series of photos, you can look it up online, from Florida Keys in the very bottom of um, Florida Mm. uh, where the the big game fishing boats go out to, you know, catch fish for sport. And, um, And it's a series of photos over the decades looking at the, the photos of the record fish being hung up on the board and with the, the smiling anglers next to them proud of their catch. And the, the smiles on the face of the anglers don't change each decade, but the size of the fish shrinks as each successive generation of anglers have a new normal of fewer, smaller fish hmm. to, to, to catch. That, that, for me, really powerfully communicates the, the gradual insidiousness of an issue like this and that's the reason why it's not in the headlines uh, on the whole and you know until you get a report like this where it might get a little blip of attention but it's one of those background issues that just keeps on rolling on and yet it has such profound implications for human society and and for our planet as a whole it, it will be one of the issues that this podcast uh, will keep returning to mm. because there are there are many aspects and facets to it in understanding what's driving this and how it can be addressed mm. Let's have another little interlude. Um, this is a podcast where uh, we're trying to learn and, and grow and, and seek to understand the world better, to be open to learning things that actually change our mind, mm. that, that change our perspective. Uh, you know, I experience this frequently. I've, I've learned new things that have changed how I live on many occasions, but I'm wondering what's, what's an example in your life of where you've changed your mind over something as an adult? Mm. Yeah, there's probably a few examples. I'm, I don't really like conflict, so I'm quick to compromise. <laughs> so, but the one which comes to mind when you ask that question, uh, about two years ago, I, um, uh, I decided to stop eating meat. And I had, uh, had spent uh, a long time, you know, conscious that the way that I, my diet, the way that I ate food wasn't really that sustainable. But for me, it was delicious. And there was still this part of me where that was the louder you know, voice in my head dictating my decisions that, that meat is delicious, um, and accessible. Uh, and if I have a desire for it, then I, and I love cooking and I could cook a kind of meal in the midst of that. But what I realized, uh, and it was through, it was through a documentary. I can't remember it at the moment, but it was one of those, uh, documentaries looking at the agricultural industry and the impact of, um, of meat production, particularly. I remember thinking, wow, like, there's, there's issues with the scale of this, but at the heart of it, it's my desire for food, which drives it and, and the desire for something which is delicious and meeting that desire rather than upholding the fact that all life is precious and that 
if I was unable to kind of say that, well, meat is delicious, but it's not precious. If I'm not actually valuing that side of it, then, then something's wrong in the misfit. And just, I don't know what it was, to be honest, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back or it was, it was something that just clicked for me. And I thought, you know what? I need to change my relationship to food. Mm. Not that I think vegetarian is the answer to save the world, but I have an unhealthy relationship to food, which is indicative of our society's relationship to so much consumption that I want to change that within me. Uh, so I'm going to cut out meat for a while and I'm going to do it strictly, strictly mm. cut out meat. So uh, kind of zealously that if, you know, if I bite into something with a bit of bacon in it, I'll spit it back out just because I, I want to at least for a season, just not have that within my diet, just so I change my relationship to it. Turns out I got a whole lot healthier <laughs> and I really loved the way it changed my relationship to food and the way that I started to learn more about flavors and ingredients and a whole bunch of different things that was exciting about cooking. And I never actually wanted to go back to eating meat. And so while I think it's, you know, I'm not at a point where I think it's wrong to eat meat. I do think the scale in which we demand it is wrong and the, uh, the outcomes of that demand cause significant harm. Yeah, For me, like I just, just been talking about, yeah. Animal agriculture is one of the great drivers of biodiversity loss, but uh, not the only one, but uh, you know, this, this is one of the, the drivers. Yeah. It's so it was conviction yeah. that drove the change, but then it was um, seeing the value and benefits, actually integrating that in who I am. Yeah. which sustained the change for me, which, yeah, I, I, you know, I feel great for it. It's been two years, but it's, I feel a lot richer in my relationship and food is more precious now. And it's, it actually, while I don't think my private decision is shifting the issue, I mean, you know, my advocacy talking about it might, but, uh, it's, com- it's keeping me anchored mm. to decisions as to how I want to live and consume and asking questions about the way that I do that, which is then driving a, a much broader engagement with the world. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. And it, it is a great illustration of uh, a topic that, again, I'm sure we'll come back to on this podcast of how change happens and the relationship between personal and system change uh, and how it's not changing a system isn't simply the accumulation of each of us changing our behaviour or our lifestyle. And it's not unrelated to it, that there's a way in which that those personal changes can help sustain efforts towards seeing a whole system mm. be made more just less destructive Mm. so thanks for sharing that Mm. i thought we'd move on to another story um which was uh, a story that came out a couple of days ago uh, about a new study looking particularly at an australian context um i've seen similar studies in in other countries this isn't a a uniquely australian experience but it's about loneliness Mm. um and the headline is loneliness study finds one in five australians rarely or never have someone to talk to Research finds 27.6% of people say they feel lonely at least three days every week. That <clears throat> this this is a uh, a relatively newish phenomenon. That these numbers are, are worsening. This has been a trend um, towards greater levels of loneliness and isolation. You know, you've got to draw distinguish between being alone and loneliness. People can actually, you know, be surrounded by people and yet still feel lonely. And uh, the, the study found that when directly asked how lonely they felt, 50.5% of Australians reported they felt lonely for at least a day in the previous week. That's half the population feeling lonely. And so I suspect if you're listening to this podcast, this is an experience that many of you, uh, that, that it's going to resonate with you. And in a sense, there's, there's both something comforting in that, when you realise you're not alone in your loneliness, um, but also something really depressing because... How can it be that there are so many of us who feel this way 
and yet it keeps getting worse. Mm. Thoughts on this? Yeah, something in uh, when, when I, I mean, I, I you know have my own experience of loneliness. I'm a I'm a 31 year old uh, male. I have friends, but I you know I also struggle to necessarily have a kind of a large group of friends for me. Kind of a few friends connected in. I get actually really caught up in my work as well, and so the sense of um, of, of purpose that I'm doing in my work can actually sometimes exclude me from these moments of social community. Um, so I can, I can relate to some of that, um, particularly, but something which actually from this particular study, which stood out for me was the difference between, uh, Australians over 65 and younger Australians and particularly the, um, the low levels of social interaction, anxiety and the fewer depression symptoms, um, and greater social interaction that, people over the age of 65 years have. So those over 65 are less lonely. Less lonely, yeah. yeah. They've got a greater sense of community and connection in the midst of that, and it's those who are actually younger Australians that have the sharper, which if you just observe from a distance, you would theoretically think that mm. younger people who are out filling their time with friends and community and socialising would have a greater sense of that. Yeah. But that's not actually a measure of a person's of connection to their peers and the people around them. In fact, that could potentially... Um, uh, be hiding uh, the fact that if in the friendships that we do have something, I, I try and sort of personalise a lot of this for me just because it, it helps me then engage with the news that way to think, well, how do I then live this out more fully as I learn? Who are the friends that I have? That When was the last time I asked them how they're doing? Or friends that I might feel like I'm close to who might feel a sense of loneliness because I don't make myself as available in those relationships. So I'm not asking questions that really speak to their experience and what they're going through. I'm not retaining knowledge about, you know, what's happening in their lives at the moment that actually, mm. um, rather than just my experience of feeling lonely, how is my distance from people causing others to feel that? Not that we're not friends and there isn't a relationship, but there's a level of intimacy in that friendship, which may be absent, which could be causing loneliness for people, even when we hang out. Without that there, it could be kind of creating a greater sense of loneliness because the people you do have, you feel like you can't be honest. Yeah. So that, I know that for me particularly, what addresses that feeling of loneliness is actually not proximity so much as being known yeah. and being understood and being heard. Yeah. And it's hard to do that sometimes when you're just out having fun with people and you're not actually able to have those connections where if somebody, you share something vulnerable with someone uh, and they remember that and they follow up with you. There's something about being known or even just to hear someone say, oh, wow. Like, it sounds like that thing you're going through is really hard. Like acknowledging the listening in the midst of that, I feel like goes a long way to really affirm that someone isn't alone because the reality is they're not. Like you're with them in that moment, hearing their stories. And as we dialogue and share and connect our stories, they're not private things that only we experience, but they actually start to be stored in the friends around us and shared by the people around us. And I feel like those interactions, when I think of that idea of maybe it's the experience of Australians 65 years and older, have, have learned how to, kind of, <laughs> to be a little bit more sincere with some of that or have had the, the depth of relationship over time yeah. to develop some of those deep bonds, which um, the triviality of our our consumption-driven and entertainment-driven society on so many fronts can actually suppress the opportunities for those connections. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see, um, you know, a study over time of how these these uh, experiences might have shifted and, and you know, uh, is it the case that the generation currently over 65 experienced lower levels of loneliness or higher levels of loneliness when they were younger? 
uh, I mean, the numbers do seem to show that this isn't simply a generation thing that, you know, you, you, you'll feel more lonely in your youth and then you work out how to relate to people better and you're less lonely as you get older. It seems to be a society-wide shift uh, happening. That may also be true, um, that, that it, it changes throughout your lifetime, but um, there are broader things at play than, than just sort of the social skills you might gain as you get older. And so I think just as the other issues we've talked about, it's important to not over-personalise this at one level, or at least to think beyond just the personal. Mm. So while I think it is really helpful to think about uh, my own experience of loneliness and to consider, as you're suggesting, how I might be contributing to other people's experience of loneliness mm. by mm. failing to listen well, by failing to show that I care and am attentive to them and remember things uh, that they've shared with me. I think it's also worth asking why is there a broader shift happening here? What are the drivers of that? Um, I mean, this is an issue that uh, is clearly large and growing and has all kinds of uh, negative effects on people's mental health. Mm. But I, I don't feel like I do have a really good grasp on the drivers of this. This is something I'd like to learn more about. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you feel like you are aware of good research uh, into this, please let me know because I'd, I'd love to learn more. Uh, you know, I mean, I can make some guesses, and you sure. you were you yeah. were pointing to some some good suggestions there about um, the rise of consumerism and the frenetic pace uh, of modern life. And uh, you know, I, I wonder about the hours that people work has actually been increasing in the last mm. couple of decades. Mm. You know, mid century, the promise was that increased productivity would lead to a shorter working week. Mm. I mean, that was the great dream. Um, that we'd get to a four-day or a three-day working week. But instead, those who profit the most from highly productive workers shifted the equation around and said, no, let's just all have more money. Um, let's work longer hours and be able to buy more stuff. And so I think there is a story here to be told about capitalism and consumerism and the erosion of community that those uh, great trends bring about. But I, I don't feel like I'm any kind of expert here. Although I do have a friend who has uh, uh, written on this topic and I've chatted with him a few times about it, and uh, uh, he points to the work of Hannah Arendt, um, a 20th century uh, political philosopher, a Jew who uh, escaped from Nazi Germany uh, to the US um, and wrote uh, the definitive book on the, the, the phenomenon of totalitarianism mm. um, called The Origins of Totalitarianism. And she actually points the finger at loneliness and, and social atomization as a root cause of a, uh, you know, and a necessary precondition for a totalitarian society, that the, the people who feel alone can feel attracted to the strongman figure, to the idea of a, uh, a state that is going to provide for those needs. And uh, I've got a quote here from uh, Arendt. She says, while isolation concerns only the political realm of life, loneliness concerns human life as a whole. Totalitarian government, like all tyrannies, could certainly could not exist without destroying the public realm of life. That is, without destroying, by isolating us, our political capacities. And so there's a feedback loop here where totalitarianism depends upon and further exacerbates that feeling of isolation, that it's a destruction of a, a public life, which in Arendt's thought means the life that we share in common with others, that where we are known and um, where we, we appear to others and, and get seen, uh, not just in a superficial sense, but where people can, can 
um, recognise us um, in, a, in, in both a superficial level and, a, and at a deep level. Mm. Again, that's a, that's a topic that I would love listeners to give uh, any thoughts and feedback on. I acknowledge that the experience of loneliness can be very uh, debilitating on the one hand, but also can look very different for different people. For some people, you know, there, there can be uh, it can be there can be all kinds of barriers to try and overcome that. And so, simply telling people, "Well, try harder to make more friends," often isn't that mm. helpful. But trying to understand not just what is causing my loneliness, but how might that be connected to bigger trends in society, and how can we make a difference not just in reaching out and building friendships at a personal level, which is you know crucial and valuable, but how can we meaningfully contribute to turning around those social trends um, is one of the questions that I'd, I'd love to keep wrestling with as we head on in this podcast. And uh, I feel like it'd be worth saying as well, some of the things that we're talking about can be very acute experiences for people. Yeah. Um, and so if there are people who are listening, who uh, things coming up for them, really, we, we would encourage you to call Lifeline. Really just, uh, is it, do you know the number of Lifeline? Um, yeah, it, uh, we will put it in the description. Yeah, great. Yeah. I think it's uh, it's really important as well to be thinking about your friends uh, who may be there and, and maybe you could reach out to them as well in, uh, in your own experience of that. And in that quote that you read just before then and how that kind of connects that idea of the way that we speak publicly uh, in our society, which can create isolation, but even the way that we engage in those dialogues and then how that's reflected in, in loneliness as well, uh, I think is a really important thing for us to keep talking about. Yeah. Again, we've, we've been covering some heavy topics here. Let's have a, a brief, lighter interlude. And uh, so another personal question for you, which is what might become a regular segment that um, I'm going to call, I'd like to give you a piece of my mind. And uh, if you could say one thing to one specific person in the world, perhaps a, a well-known person who you're unlikely to get access to, but you just have one chance to say one thing to them, very briefly, what would it be, and and who? I feel like I, I know what I would say. I haven't. I don't know who I would pick. <laughs> so maybe I'll start with what I All would right. say because yeah, yeah. there's a lot of people who um, may be relevant to yeah. may be relevant to. I would encourage people to to listen and to listen deeply. That particularly people who are in leadership positions, particularly people who are in representative leadership positions, and not just listen because it's a part of your job, but actually sit down with people who. Uh, you might seem opposed to and and sit down with them and don't don't contribute your thoughts just sit and listen because I think as we sit and we listen uh, the stories that come up actually connect us the the fears that are, are deep down for us are uh, fears that actually connect us the the longings that we have for our family and our friends and our own lives and, and how we want to see kind of uh, flourishing in our world are things which actually really connect us and there are so many layers on top of that which seek to divide us. So if I had if I had to pick someone um, at the moment right now, I would I would probably pick Scott Morrison. He's a professing Christian. He's our prime minister uh, in a very tricky position. If you're uh, listening to this later, Scott Morrison was the Australian prime minister, and at least for this particular week. <laughs> <laughs> um, Who knows when this gets uploaded? Whether he still will be. <laughs> I um, yeah, I would say listen and 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 deeply listen, and particularly to uh, people that there could be policies uh, that are currently causing harm. To, to particular people groups or or minorities sit down and, and listen and, and I'm talking uh, hours mm. not just a 30 minute window what does it actually look like to listen long enough 
that empathy develops. So not put a time limit on, put the outcome of empathy and an understanding of a person's experience. Because I think that truly changes who we are. Empathy, sympathy is an ability to see a person's so but empathy actually changes us mm. and our our own connection to an issue because we've taken on a person's story and we've felt a sense of our own kind of identity and connection from their sharing and our listening to them. Yeah, and that requires the time yeah. to actually start to walk in their shoes as the saying goes, yeah. doesn't it? That's not something that can happen immediately. And speaking of listening, this this is something that I feel quite excited about with this uh, podcast, just uh, that we're beginning with this episode, is the chance to have sustained conversations about things that matter with people that I respect. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, having a whole series uh, of these as the podcast continues. Uh, and if you, as a listener, have suggestions of who you would like me to have a conversation with, please send them through as well. But let's uh, also thinking of time and uh, having conversations that, that are sustained, but, um, you know, maybe don't go on all night. Let's move on to our third segment. Uh, so our first one was, what's the big idea? Our second segment was, what's going on? The third segment is, what do we do? Mm-hmm. We don't want this podcast to just be a gas bagging effort um, of... Uh, uh, you know, ruminating on the news and, and uh, joining the chattering classes, but to actually help us live better in the world, to be more human, to, to be more authentically a creature, um, receiving common grace um, and sharing that with others. And, and so uh, in this segment, uh, we're going to reflect on how we respond to one or more of the stories that we've just been talking about. As we've as we've been discussing these stories, some some ideas have already come up, and uh, you know I think Scott's uh, comments uh, there at the end about listening and about reaching out to those in our circle and making sure that we are really listening to them, both as a, a service to them to to make sure that they are a little bit less lonely, but also as an, an entrance into us feeling less lonely. I think they're excellent recommendations. But let's, let's move on to a couple of other thoughts on how we might respond to, to some of these stories. Uh, and I, I always want to start with an action that is really very immediate and can be done you know, almost on the spot as you're listening. And so for this episode, uh, given that we've been talking about the atmosphere that we all share and that common breath that we have, uh, the first uh, response, I think, could just be a breathing exercise, a deliberate slowing of our breath where we take the time to breathe slowly in and you you know you might count um see if you can count uh, three four five six however much you can do and then hold the breath again for a count of six seven eight and then let that breath out slowly again over a count of six or seven or eight depending what is comfortable for you don't force it Um, but if you slow your breathing right down and make it conscious as you breathe slowly in reflect on that gift of air reflect that it comes to you without your effort without you having contributed to it it's a gift of photosynthesis it's a gift of oxygen from all the the plants and the phytoplankton around the world that sustains you that keeps you alive a gift ultimately from the creator and then as you hold on to that uh, for a count of six or seven or eight, just remember that that gift is something that has to be received, that we, we, 
We can breathe unconsciously. We can receive these gifts without thinking about it. But acknowledging the good things that we get for free is a spiritual discipline that can transform our lives, uh, making us not just into people who are more grateful, but people who take more notice of those who might be missing out on those gifts, those who are having those gifts stolen from them. And then as we breathe out, reflecting on what we are contributing, on how our breath itself becomes part of the gift to others, part of what we breathe out, others are breathing in. Uh, and so reflecting on whether my actions, whether they're conscious or unconscious, whether, whether I'm contributing to that polluting, whether it's polluting public discourse, whether it's polluting the literal atmosphere. You know, am I, am I overly reliant on a car? Am I using burning a lot of uh, wood in a wood fire stove? Am I using a lot of coal energy unnecessarily? But reflecting both literally but also metaphorically on what we're breathing out. So that's, that's my first suggestion. Uh, for an action is, is just to do that breathing exercise, slowing your breath down. I've been trying to do this actually the last couple of weeks or two after a, uh, it was suggested to me, and uh, I've been finding that quite a helpful uh, little, just just little centering um, exercise um, uh, each night as I go to bed and then in the morning um, as I awake. A second thought on what are we to do is uh, I'd, I'd like each week to give a brief book review or documentary review or something that's about the, the filling your, your mind, learning and, and growing. And so I want to recommend a, uh, a book that I've been recommending to a number of friends recently that I, I read just uh, a month or two ago by George Monbiot, who is a UK investigative journalist and social commentator. It's called Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. And I've got a lot of respect, a lot of time for, for Monbiot. Uh, he is a journalist with a lot of integrity, I believe, who looks at the big picture but is also willing to dive down and be very careful with his facts and, and making sure that he has good reasons for the claims that he makes. And this book is a book not just about what's wrong with the world. That's, there are plenty of books like that. This is a book about what are some of the ways forward and how can we seek a new politics, which he calls a politics of belonging, where we, where we understand ourselves to belong to one another, to belong to places, and, and to uh, belong to those who come after us, um, whose lives we will shape by the choices that we make today. Uh, and so there's, there's an analysis of uh, what he thinks some of the dominant narratives are that have been shaping us for the last few decades, uh, particularly neoliberalism, a big idea that gets thrown around a lot. I won't discuss it just now, um, but he does an excellent job of summarising it but then gives a lot of practical suggestions for how to advance a different kind of politics. Uh, and so I found it a, a deeply encouraging and motivating book um, when it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the scale of the bad news that's happening. Uh, this was one of those moments where I began to see new possibilities that I hadn't seen before, and that was, was life-giving for me. So I recommend that book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. If you want to get the condensed version of it, there's a one-hour lecture available online on YouTube that you can uh, look up if you just look up that title. Uh, he's been giving that as a talk around the traps, and uh, you can get a bit of a taste for his argument there. Third, so I want to do uh, one response that can be done immediately, one that is uh, about a book or a film or something to, to watch or read, um, but then one that's a bit more ambitious. And uh, for this one, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Scott is going to be able to 
uh, help me a bit, mm. um, uh, a more ambitious life commitment towards justice. And so, Scott, do you want to suggest something here for what our listeners could uh, put on their plate for longer-term consideration? Mm. Yeah, first thing, first thing I would think about living a more ambitious life with a commitment towards justice is don't do it alone. Mm. Uh, actually get connected in with people who are on that journey together, whether that's uh, to challenge the, the risk of loneliness, which happens so often, or to kind of check your own, uh, your own attitudes, which may be kind of contributing to public discourse, which is unhelpful. So the first thing I would, I would suggest is share with someone uh, something you care deeply about, an issue that you care deeply about. Have a, have a conversation with them, share, and ask questions that they care deeply about to kind of find that commitment which is shared amongst the people that you know. But don't just talk about it. Get Get involved with a, a bigger movement uh, who are seeking to make change on these different issues. Get informed um, and get inspired and get challenged to do something about it. Obviously, I'm going to recommend Common Grace uh, is one of those movements that we're seeing. Commongrace.org.au.org.au. If you have an email address, that's really where it starts. So if you're on Facebook and you want to follow us along uh, on Facebook, we're seeking to create opportunities for, for Christians to pick up their faith and carry it into the contemporary issues in our world today, to find a meaningful faith-based response to global injustices in our world, and then to organize together about how we do something about that, how we play our role in wider society to be that gracious, compassionate voice addressing some of these key justice issues. But it's about getting connected in um, with that. An email address is a great place to start there. Uh, but there are countless other organizations to get involved and connected with, ones which may uh, fit within your tradition, ones which may fit within um, your view of the world, ones which may challenge your view of the world, which can be a healthy, healthy thing to kind of be a part of. Uh, but I'd really encourage you not to carry the responsibility of making a difference in the world and carrying these issues, caring about these issues, not to do that alone, but actually to connect in with people uh, so that we're doing something together. Because there's something incredibly rich when you think of that, not just the organization Common Grace, but the theme, the idea that's been throughout this whole episode. It's, it's seeing one another and seeing the beauty in one another, responding generously, and then doing something to address those areas where people are held back from that because there's injustice or things which actually restrict people's capacity to embrace all that's there for life and be a part of that solution in solidarity and friendship and with a commitment that doesn't give up. That commitment to listening as long as it takes to understand and also to not get overwhelmed by the reality of injustice, but let it fuel your engagement in the world that we might be a part of making things right. Yeah, thanks, Scott. And there's a, um, a great quote by uh, Kathleen Moore, who was asked, uh, what can one person do? And she just quipped, don't be one person, <laughs> uh, which I think really summarises that. Yeah, that's that, great. Uh, we, we need each other. Uh, I, I learned so much from Scott and uh, so much from uh, uh, many of you who are listening, um, I'm sure, uh, to this first episode, probably mainly being listened to by people who I already know. Um, and uh, so we really do need one another. Um, and thanks, Scott, for taking the time to come in and have this chat today. I look forward to further conversations with you in future. Um, and uh, thank you for listening. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing back from you about what you found helpful about this, what you found uh, uh, could be improved. Um, and I'm very open to having that uh, uh, constructive feedback. Um, and please do uh, share this. Um, it, it really does help if you will... Uh, uh, subscribe to it on whichever podcast app that you're using. Uh, if you will rate it and comment and do all those usual things, um, 
then uh, if this has been useful to you, this is a way of making it useful to, to more people. Uh, and if you want to follow along um, and discuss some of these stories further, then, then uh, sign up to the Facebook group for The Good Dirt. Um, and uh, uh, I look forward to continuing relationships that I already have with some of you and, and making new relationships uh, as we head into the future. Um, and so uh, you've been listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, and it's now time to go and get your hands dirty. <laughs>